I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 15th, 2014. Coming up, we talk about space dust and an instrument that's about to crash into the moon to measure it. These, these are really mighty bullets. <laughs> so, and of course, nature does this all the time. We are not really aware of it on, on Earth because the atmosphere protects you. They burn up, they vanish. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The first NASA mission that will collect and return a sample of an asteroid has passed a major hurdle in the planning and design process. The mission, called the Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer, or the shorter name OSIRIS-REx, has passed a critical design review and has been given the go-ahead to begin building the spacecraft, flight instruments, ground system, and launch support facilities. The external independent review was held at Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company here in Littleton, Colorado. OSIRIS-REx is scheduled to launch in the fall of 2016, rendezvous with the asteroid Bennu in 2018, and return a sample of it to Earth in 2023. The spacecraft carries five instruments that will evaluate the surface of the asteroid during the visit. Then, after more than a year of studying the asteroid, the spacecraft will collect samples of at least 60 grams and return them to Earth for scientists to study. The objectives of the OSIRIS-REx mission include answering questions about the composition of the very early solar system and the source of organic materials and water that made life possible on Earth. The mission will also aid NASA's asteroid initiative and support the agency's efforts to understand the population of potentially hazardous near-Earth objects and characterize those suitable for future asteroid exploration missions. Back down on Earth, the solution to spousal arguments might not lie in marriage counseling, but instead in a Snickers bar or a bunch of grapes or a bagel. Researchers from the University of Columbus, Ohio, have recently found low blood sugar levels mean husbands and wives are more likely to get aggressive with each other. And just how did the scientists measure that anger? For the three-week study, they gave all the subjects voodoo dolls that looked like their partners. Each day of the study, the participants had to record their blood sugar levels and at the same time stick between 1 and 51 pins in their voodoo doll. The researchers found the lower the blood sugar, the more pins in the spousal doll. They found the same results regardless of how well or how poorly the couples rated their relationship. The best way to raise blood sugar quickly is to eat carbohydrates, and the scientists hope that this knowledge could even prevent spousal abuse in certain situations. The study was published online yesterday in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. Big money for big data. On Wednesday last week, British physicist Stuart Parkin won the 2014 Millennium Technology Prize. The prize is awarded every other year by Technology Academy Finland, and don't write it off if you haven't heard of it. The prize is intended to be the equivalent of the Nobel for tech and is worth 1 million euros. That's about $1.38 million. Previous laureates include the creator of the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, 
and ethical stem cell pioneer Shinya Yamanaka. Parkin won the prize this year for his work in spintronics, which uses the magnetic spin of electrons to save data. This work has contributed to the explosion in memory capacity around the world, allowing information to be stored in magnetic disk drives accessed online via the cloud. Parkin is an IBM Research Fellow, a consulting professor at Stanford University, and director of the Experimental Department of Germany's Max Planck Institute of Microstructure Physics. Maybe you already knew, but I didn't, that right here in Boulder at the University of Colorado, we have one of two special particle accelerators. The other is in Germany. And these accelerators launch, drum roll please, dust. I also didn't know that I cared about dust accelerators or dust at all, really, until yesterday when I got a tour of the NASA-funded Colorado Center for Lunar Dust and Atmospheric Studies. Dr. Mihai Hirani and his colleagues are on the brink of watching an instrument they developed crash into the moon. But it's okay. It's designed to. In the meantime, the instrument, LDEX, is measuring impacts from dust particles a fraction of the width of a human hair on NASA, NASA's Lottie mission. It's measured more than 11,000 of these tiny impacts since falling into orbit in October. I was on my own mission to figure out just what was so interesting about space dust. And I'm going to admit here that the sound for this interview wasn't perfect, including a creaky chair, but I like to think of each creak as a bit of dust getting zapped into that dust collector somewhere close and getting closer to the surface of the moon. So you have an instrument that's heading toward the surface of the moon. That's right, yes. Um, and it's measuring, it's measuring dust, uh, which to most of us is maybe not so interesting. We try to get rid of it. We don't really find a lot to say about it, or we wouldn't want to necessarily spend, what, $6 million to send <laughs> an instrument to measure it. So what is so interesting about dust? So you are sending instruments or building instruments to receive photons and take images. You are building and sending instruments to measure atoms and molecules. And then that sequence, the next building block in the universe would be small dust particles. Just like photons, they carry information from far away distances. When you fly around the moon, we learn about the surface. It's just another way to learn how nature works. So it's not necessarily the dust that you think about is accumulating in your house and you want to get rid of it. For us, it's a messenger of the processes and the materials and everything that happened to that chunk of matter that the instrument is measuring. What can it tell us? So this is a relatively simple instrument. Uh, it is measuring the, the density, the size distribution as a function of time around the, as we fly around the moon. We do see periods when there is a lot of dust around the moon, like when you would see meteor showers looking up in the night sky. Uh, some of that beam of material hits the moon and generates particles lofting off from the surface and we measure that, the cloud that emerges once bigger objects hit the, hit the moon. 
Why are we interested in, in this dust that's being thrown Okay, by so there are ma many, so you can imagine, this is a frequent question, why did we <laughs> blew six million dollars to measure dust around the moon? Because we all learned in school that there is no atmosphere, there is no nothing, and the moon is just an object in space, there's nothing exciting about it. it turns out there's a lot of things exciting about the moon. One is that we learn that this ejecta cloud, the cloud that is generated by incoming other objects, is continuously around the moon and that is a process that is largely responsible for resurfacing sinks. For example, in due time craters will be smoothed over, sinks that like winds and rivers take care of on Earth. There are no such resurfacing processes on the moon. So the ejecta and the gardening or the overturning of, this, of the material, or the regolith, the dusty upper layer of the, of, of the lunar surface, is being maintained or, or resurfaced at all times. So that is a process, of course, then, that when you look around the solar system, there are many other objects without an atmosphere, like Mercury, like uh, Phobos and Deimos, the moons of, uh, of Mars, or small asteroids or dormant comets, and then we, for example, take spectral images and you look at these lines as a function of wavelengths and you try to learn about their composition, how they teach you about the origin and evolution of the solar system. We tell you to be careful because even though there is no atmosphere, there are no rivers, there are the bombardment, the surface processes that change things that you might think you are learning. So there is this kind of an academic uh, aspect of all this that uh, it's a process that takes place throughout the solar system and we would like to learn about it. Now back to the moon or back to dreams that one day we're gonna send people to the moon. Um, there is this wonderful idea what we refer to as in situ resource, resource utilization, ISRU. You go and like a good hunter on earth you make a living and you, you find all the, all the materials and all the resources you need to, to sustain your life like water or, or precious metals that would make maybe one day commercially viable to to get stuff from the moon. And then uh, imagine that we are flying over the surface as the ejecta particles from the surface would come out from a real estate that is roughly the footprint underneath the spacecraft. And if I could tell you, not with this instrument that we built, but now, because we know that the cloud is there, the ejecta cloud is there, we could argue for more sophisticated instruments. We could fly one that would tell you the chemical composition. And we could make you a map. Should you look for gold or titanium or water, the particles are chunks from the surface. And then we could precisely tell you where the resources lay on the ground, where it would be a better idea to land or, or a, maybe not so part of the moon to, to plan your long-term habitats. So we could essentially map out the geology of the moon by measuring the dust at the surface. The, the dust from the surface is chunks from the material mm -hmm. and there is, I'm not arguing that's a better way than remote sensing. Certainly you could look at reflected sunlight and we could learn a lot in many other ways and they have their own problems. Dust composition measurement would also have it's it's uh, in, you know how to get to the real nitty gritty details of the of the measurement you want to make, but it would be at least complementary. And from these two sets of complementary measurement, remote sensing and in situ for a dust detector, uh, would really give you your best chance to to find what you are looking for.
And there is one more aspect that is, as far as human exploration goes, it's important, is that uh, hopefully no spacecraft would ever hit by a centimeter-sized object, because that would be deadly. A so centimeter-sized object would in be the, deadly. Yes, if, if you are in space, and typical speeds are 10, 15, 20 kilometers per sec, if a centimeter-sized bullet hits you, it's game over. So we're talking about the kind of debris that we saw in the movie Gravity, for if example. That, that, that's right. Okay. And we know very little about it. Of course, much larger objects, you either have a big airburst, like in Chernobyl's not long ago, or you have the craters left behind on the ground. Tiny particles, micron, 10 micron, 50 micron, we have reasonably good measurements in space. But this in-between regime, fortunately, is not a whole lot of them, but we know very little about them. And the moon as you fly around the moon, is an incredibly large detector. If a centimeter-sized object hits it, it will generate a big plume of dust that we can measure. And from the amount of dust I measure, I can tell you how many of those really killer particles are around because I can use the entire lunar surface as a dust detector. Imagine that my, the, the spacecraft is a few square meters, but the dust I'm collecting from the area is a few hundred square kilometers. So it's a, it's, it's a huge amplification when you hit something at high speeds. The amount of small material is enormous compared to the incoming material, the one big bullet. I turned it into hundreds of thousands of small, tiny bullets that are harmless to the spacecraft. But I can learn what was the original impactor that made this cloud. You can learn the, the you're saying you can learn the composition? No, no, the, not, not with our current instrument. Mm -hmm. Eventually we could, or we could fly instruments in space that would tell you the composition of interplanetary, even interstellar dust. But even with this current little LDEX, the lunar dust experiment, we see these bursts of particles and we learn how frequently it happened that a much bigger centimeter-sized object hit the moon and we can update our models and we can use it as uh, improvements to our hazard estimates should you decide that we're going to send people back or you're going to fly people to, to Mars and you could argue is this the same environment that you would expect at Mars. So before we're sending people there, we should send dust detectors. We could get a feel for just how frequently these small but deadly yes. objects are hitting the moon. And I think it would be a good investment. <laughs> Are you planning on going to the moon? <laughs> I myself, I don't think I'm qualifying for a number of reasons. Uh, but I, uh, if you ask if I'm for sending people, man, back to the moon, I'm all for it. You are? Not, the, the arguments are manifold. Some of them is scientific. Some of them is, you know, just human nature. Just let's do it. Let's, uh, let's see how we can have a footprint bigger than Earth in the solar system. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Beth Bartel, and we are talking with Dr. Mihai Hirani of the Colorado Center for Lunar Dust and Atmospheric Studies. We're talking about space dust and getting distracted by other things like whether we should colonize the moon. You can listen to the extended version of this interview on our website to catch more on human space travel. But here, we get back 
to the dust. Okay, so I'm happy to keep talking about just the moon itself, the, the dust environment of the moon. Of course, dust instruments have flown across the solar system by now. In this group that you are visiting here, uh, there, there is an instrument that flies around Saturn, on, on Cassini, and the dust instrument were, perhaps was one of the first indicators when we noticed the, the plumes coming out, the uh, icy plumes coming out from the moon Enceladus, and the composition of those plumes, finding little salt uh, contaminations, were the first ideas that there is an undersea, under surface ocean where these particles are coming from. This and was not, then an instrument that not only could measure dust particles, but also could measure the composition. Yes, so just like our instrument, when you hit a surface at high speed, the incoming will f fall into smithereens, into atoms and molecules. And in our case, we just get a total signal. In the case of the Cassini instrument, there's a time-of-flight mass spectrometer is, is included in this instrument. So we could tell you what is the, the original particle was made out of silica or sulfur or okay. oxygen. Uh, these are the high-end dust instruments, but there are simpler ones. Uh, there is a dust instrument that is on New Horizons to Pluto that is much simpler, cannot even tell you roughly, even just very crudely the size. It just counts the number of hits the instrument is exposed to. And how, are we talking about a lot of hits? Are we talking about lots of dust? What uh, are we, talking we are talking about, about so this instrument was turned on Early on, since 2006, it continuously makes measurements across the entire solar system, and we have a map of the dust density distribution in our own solar system. And you say, wow, who cares? <laughs> well, you do care, because when you look at, in the last 15, 20 years, perhaps one of the biggest intellectual uh, steps forward was the recognizing how many planets there are and how many dust disks around other stars we see in the sky. And then the planets that we were could be directly measured, or even indirectly measured uh, for, from various techniques, are typically very large, like Jupiter-sized objects, and they are all very close to the central star, which is an observational bias. These are the ones that it's easiest to notice. And then are these regions where we see just a dust disk, and we see structure in the dust, disk, which just tells you, ah, there must be small planets inside, and their gravity, gravitational interaction with the dust around it, makes a footprint, makes it non... is like there are kind of rings of dust, or, or some sort of that, that's, of that's right, and then you would say, oh, that's wonderful. I do know we have planets. I do know we have dust, because you look up at the night sky and you see zodiacal light, which is light scattered from dust particles in, in our own solar system, and now you ask the question, do we have a structure? Does it work as you think it is working at other places? And does the planets in our own solar system set up these resonant structures and they make the dust distribution uneven? And what happens when we pass Pluto? Is, is there going to be less dust or more dust? Or what happens at the outer edges of the solar system? So even a small, simple dust instrument, and that is actually as simple as it gets. It was designed and built and operated by students here at the University of Colorado. So this is the, <laughs> the simplest possible instrument, and it will still report to you mind-boggling bits and pieces of information that there is uh, con contributes to our knowledge about our own solar system, how it compares to solar system somewhere else. And 
back to the moon <laughs> anyway there there is in a similar vein there is a lot of things that we we learn how the meteorite streams are disturbing surfaces uh, how the surface overturn or the surface properties are set by the by the continual bombardment by interplanetary dust so yes we blew six million bucks if you like but i think there is a lot of knowledge that uh, is coming in return are you a little bit sad that the instrument's going to be destroyed in three weeks <laughs> uh there there is a routine to my life since last October. Every morning I check the new data. I will, cert I will certainly miss that. There, is a, there, there will be some level of sadness. But also with every instrument there is a lot of uh, excitement and, and tight stomachs. That is it going to work? Is it going to do what we promised it's going to do? There will be some, some relief as well. <laughs> that, and mission successful. And I think this mission was uh, all instruments... We had three on board, an ultra-mass spectrometer, an ultraviolet imaging camera, and the dust instrument. And we also had a laser communication demo. So now we know we are safe. You could actually watch Netflix on the moon from Earth. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, well, there is a really high rate uh, way to communicate. So that's one issue that uh, how to keep up there will be humans one day and how to keep communications and data transfer rates high and it is quite feasible this little bloody mission demonstrated that marvelously That is Glenn Miller's Stardust, and that was Dr. Mihai Harani of the Colorado Center for Lunar Dust and Atmospheric Studies, talking about, among other things, the University of Colorado Instrument LDEX on NASA's LADEE mission. For more, check out the extended interview on the How on Earth website, howonearthradio.org, which will be up shortly. We talk about why we should colonize the moon, how Dr. Harani get in, got into studying dust in the first place, which is a very interesting Cold War era story, noctilucent clouds and climate change indicators here on Earth, and what zodiacal light is. I admit I was wooed by the term and needed to know more about it. You probably won't see the night sky quite the same way. In the meantime, mark your calendars for April 21st, when Lottie gets up and personal with the surface of the moon, which leads me to wonder, does an impact on the moon cause a dust cloud if there's no instrument to measure it? How's that for philosophical this morning? That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is me, Joel Parker, also engineering this week's show. Our producer for this show was Beth Bartell. Additional contributions today by Jane Palmer. Our theme music this morning was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Queen, David Bowie, and Glenn Miller. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Joel Parker.